Is it, it going to be a J- Jason Statham yeah, scenario? I just okay, but why are we recording the bit? Where we talk, about, I feel like Jason's going to be starting the recording trickery. is like a meta bit, you know? Right. It, yeah. Oh, good point. Uh, Jack we Nicholson. Wow. Thanks for showing up for recording. Oh, wait, Jack's here. Are we starting Jack, this now? Jack, uh, we started recording. Uh, the recording has started. So, wait, did Jack make it into the link? Where is he? The the I, bit be, the bit begins the minute recording is started, and so someone needs to do a terrible Jack Nicholson impression. Basically, throughout this entire hour no, plus long have podcast, Jack. Oh, I think we have Jack here. Is, is the thing. Oh, so we don't need to do an impression. Yeah, can no, somebody come no, into the room? Jack's here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what, where is he? Here. Uh, just a second. There's uh, Jack. Can you hear us? Hey there. Can- nope. Can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. You, Jack Nicholson, you think you think you can do a good Nicholson, but the minute you start doing it, you're like, nah, I don't, I don't, I don't got this. I think you're mistaken here. I gotta say, I think I've got a pretty good Jack Nicholson. I was talking pretty- to my agent, and he told me I had to slum, so I came down to this here podcast. How's that? Right, that uh, the rest bad. of the podcast is now doing like the the diving ratings. I'm holding up a seven, I think. You know? Oh, I don't know. I'm, giving, uh, I'm giving that one a seven five. It was better than I thought it'd be. Yeah, uh, you know what, uh, 7.8, let's do it. My secret is to do uh, Robin Williams doing Jack Nicholson in Aladdin, which is when he just, you, you sort of bob your oh, head yeah. back and forth. And That's you go, a really good idea. Here's because, the, uh, listen, you're gonna, we're going to talk about this movie. It's going to be a good time. I'm going to need you to just relax and go with me on this, all right? Can you do that for me, Sparky? That's you know, because I think the failings of like distinct voices like that when you do impressions like someone like Nicholson or Busey is like it gets off the rails when you focus on like the eccentric version of that voice or like when they get particularly es- escalated. But if you're doing it through like somebody else doing an impression of Jack Nicholson, you you I feel like you yeah you find yeah, a way to contain yourself. Sort of like, stuff. Yeah, you gotta sound frustrated and you gotta sound like you're talking down to him, so you really gotta enunciate and punctuate your words because this person's a little bit dumber than you, so you just He's got to really spell it out. You understand me? <laughs> yeah, like he's, we, he's leaning over to talk to somebody at a Lakers game or something. I think you've nailed it. Exactly. Jason, could we? Uh, could we maybe? I don't know the te- the technical aspect of this. Could we maybe uh, like pipe in like a Jack Nicholson soundboard? You know what I mean? Just like all the classic quotes from the movies, and it's like yeah, it's like, like he's there. We're talking with him. It'd be kind of wacky, you know? No, time okay. to make um, some Mookie. Right, that's Batman. You get it. it it's time to make yeah. some Mookie, and it's time to thank our listeners for listening to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema. My name is Jason Daphnis. I'm the only one who tells you the truth, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm totally convinced if you marry Cody Narvison tomorrow, it will be a mistake of such gigantic proportions. It will ruin your life and make wretched your destiny. And you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Who the fuck is this?
Harry Sanborn. Okay. I'll answer the question. That sounds pretty good, actually. Like, I don't hate how that sounds. Is that just through a phone? Absolutely. Oh, this is... Look, it's like we're actual funny podcasters. This is great, everybody. That's right. I don't know. Who the hell is this? (laughs) Okay, I'm done. I'm sorry. (laughs) We can start over. Uh, I'm not special special enough to survive... uh, what is it? A bad marriage? Mediocre marriage? I can't remember the line now. Bad marriage is what it was. Um, not mediocre marriage. But I'm. My name's Harry. I'm uh, at Chitake Harry. That was a Jack Nicholson soundboard. Um, say hi, Jack. Hey. Nice. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm Aaron. Uh, gorgeous isn't everything. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter hiatus uh, at RB Please. And today's film is 1983's Terms of Endearment, directed by James L. Brooks, uh, as part of our series on Polly Platt and her uh, contributions to cinema over the years. She did production design on this movie, as she did for Targets and uh, our previous episode on The Last Picture Show. Um, Look forward to it, but I'm going to let Aaron give us a little bit of an overview of what this movie is about. Yes, uh, 1983's Terms of Endearment, as uh, Jason mentioned, directed by James L. Brooks, based on the Larry McMurtry novel of the same name. Uh, Notably, it was the second book of McMurtry's that Polly Platt helped uh, adapt uh, after the last picture show, which was the last episode that we recorded. Um, Terms of Endearment shows the relationship between mother and daughter over a period of many years. Uh, The mother is Aurora Greenway, played by Shirley MacLaine. Uh, and the daughter is Emma Greenway Horton, played by Deborah Winger. Uh, the two have an often strained but still loving relationship, uh, connecting over the phone, even when separated by distance. Um, the two change over uh, a course of many years. Um, Aurora begins to get over her uh, kind of more conservative nature by having a relationship with her next door neighbor, Garrett, played by Jack Nicholson. Um, and Emma relies on her mother as her marriage to her husband, uh, Flap, a guy named Flap. Uh, Flap, played by Jeff Daniels, uh, becomes even more strained over the years. Uh, Danny DeVito is also in this movie. Um, Terms of Endearment was a massive critical and commercial success on release. It went on to be nominated for 11 Academy Awards, uh, eventually winning five. It won Best Picture, uh, Best Director, Best Screenplay based on material from another medium. Um, Best Actress, uh, Shirley Shirley MacLaine uh, won that. Um, There were two nominations for Best Actress, two nominations for Supporting Actor as well, uh, with Jack Nicholson picking up one of them. Um, As of the kind of last few films we talked about here, this is another uh, in the Trilon series on Polly Platt. Uh, This film, I think, specifically is notable for Platt, um, and that I believe it was the first film she worked with uh, on the director James L. Brooks. Uh, She would go on to collaborate with him uh, many more times over the years. I think most notably, she was the executive VP uh, on his production company. Uh, she would later go on to work on the films uh, Broadcast News, The War of the Roses, Say Anything, Bottle Rocket. Uh, most of those weren't directed by Brooks, but were through his production company. Um, and also specifically for this film, uh, she got uh, an Academy Award uh, uh, with a few other people uh, for Best Art Direction. Uh, so this was kind of a, a very important uh, film in her career. Uh, Jason, take it away. Why would I, when you're doing such a great job of it? Um, starting off our very top level uh, thoughts, I, there's lots to grapple with here. I have not seen uh, this movie before, but I had seen broadcast news once before. I think that's the extent of my James L. Brooks knowledge, at least directorially. Um, like, I don't know. The th- recurring thread throughout the movie is that, like, you know, terms of endearment, the actual, like, sociological phenomenon it, uh, assumes that there's, like, 
like a difference between what you say and what you mean, if only like figuratively and sometimes like somewhat almost like crassly, somewhat meanly. Um, and that's really hard to communicate, I think, uh, for two characters on a screen. Uh, and I don't know if this movie is helped by the fact that the writing is a little bit more heightened, excuse me, heightened, uh, maybe more saccharine than you would hope for in communicating that like mild duplicity and in some cases, very like strong duplicity. The, you know, the mother and daughter characters have almost like a, an antagonistic relationship to one another at the worst of times. Excuse me. Um, so like in communicating that it's a little bit harder to do when the script is as it is very, uh, almost, almost like, like unreal at times, weirdly. So almost like feeling like, like scripted, uh, which is not great for what's supposed to be like a natural delivery here. And maybe I'm totally shitting over all concept of concepts of cinema and screenwriting here, but it just, it wasn't always working for me. Um, some of that is just like James L. Brooks. Like I said, I've seen broadcast news before and I do recognize beats and tones and themes from, you know, that seem to be, uh, shared between these two movies anyway. Um, and there's obviously stuff that works in here. Of course, it's, you know, critical and commercial success and the awards that it was given, uh, appear to be deserved, but, um, I just don't know that these characters aligned as they are and and like uh, opposed as they are at times draw me in as much as like the very intimate story would sort of necessitate in a lot of ways. Um, maybe that makes you guys think of anything else, but uh, for right now I'm doing another lap around the pool. And while I do that, I'm going to let uh, Cody take it away with his thoughts. Wow. Uh, thank you, Jason. Great form. Uh, by the way, that's uh, a solid backstroke you have. Um I took swimming lessons. That that one's for real, I think. Uh, breaststroke. I, I see you're... Okay, you're moving to that one. Um, anyways, I'll let him keep swimming here. Uh, yeah, this is a weird place for me to start maybe, but I'm certain I would have loved this movie if I'd watched it in like late high school or college, uh, somewheres around there, somewheres. Uh, it's a movie that's anchored by, like it's been said, very like bold, vibrant performances and the dialogue has a lot of sharp jabs to it. And I think that would have been plenty for me to adore this film, at least upon an initial watch. And even the other day for a good chunk of the runtime, I actually had a pretty good time watching this by myself uh, in in stretches. Uh, it was a screening I started at like 10.30 p.m., which is uh, kind of risky business for me. And I'm usually a harsher critic uh, later at night, but I was... I found myself audibly laughing in ways that did feel similar to when uh, I watched another James L. Brooks film uh, that has been brought up, Broadcast News. But I think I was responding in that way with a sort of good faith that these moments would um, eventually become something, whether it was you know more complex character interiorities or character growth or small scale, but like critical, tangible stakes. And I guess I'd like I'm not confident any of that ever really happened. Like this feels to me like a showcase for those characters and performances and sharp dialogue. That being said, in some ways, like, I, I don't know if this is too harsh to say, but like in some ways it kind of also barely feels like a movie. It felt like a, a, a mix of like for most of, if not all of the arcs of our primary characters, they, they don't feel entirely finished and like any baby steps they do take, like I, I trouble wrapping my head around the fact of, of like whether or not they're earned. And with both of those things, like depending on what your movie is, I wouldn't necessarily say that either of those things are a bad thing, but after inhabiting the same you know, four or five, primarily, you know, people's stories for over two hours, I, I guess I wanted them to do more and feel more. And instead there were just like a lot of things happening to them, which didn't match, I guess what I wanted to see uh, out of them and, and this movie. And I guess also with the lack of stakes, even that comes with it a certain benefit and that like you can feel 
unconcerned about certain consequences, maybe as you watch, like the closest I can compare that feeling to, and it's not necessarily one-to-one, but like in a shitty horror movie, if you don't care what happens to the group of characters, either because they're not redeeming or they're people you can't relate to or something like that, then that might rob some of the capability of feeling fright. But at the same time, if you want to, you could allow yourself to like redirect your viewing, your viewing energy and elsewhere, you know, into something else. And or like something else contained within the movie. And like here, I got to a point where I realized that I don't care if Emma ends up with Flap or if Emma ends up with Sam. Uh, I think that's John Lithgow's character's name. Um, there's enough going on that I got to a point where I was like, okay, I'm fine with however this shakes out. That's a teeny weight lifted off my shoulders, which felt nice in the moment. Uh, but I guess part of the deflated feeling that I have right now when thinking about this movie, which again, or maybe not, not again, but I, I should clarify, it's a movie that I would honestly still say that I liked and would maybe even watch again someday, if only just for a few laughs, um, is that there's less to direct my energy toward than, uh, again, than, than just I wanted. And I could feel the ceiling kind of being lowered on my experience with this movie as a, as a result of that, which is whatever. But with that, um, I guess what I should do next is maybe find out where all that noise is coming from. I, I think it might be my next door neighbor over the wall here uh, on my other side. Um, I should walk over and ask him to, to quiet down. Hey, uh, hey, Harry. Oh, he's doing laps too. What the hell? Um, Harry, could you maybe be mindful uh, of other people, please? Harry, you there? Yeah, sorry. That was me, Jack. I'm hanging out with some of my girls and we like to get a little bit loud sometimes. You know how it is. I don't, but sure. At the end there. Um, Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Cody. That was a good introduction. Um, I really liked a lot of what you and Jason both said. I would say that this movie... um, is was a valuable watch experience for me in that it, it codified a couple of things that I think I maybe don't like, which is interesting, right? Um, or maybe just to me. But like, for instance, um, I knew that Roger Ebert was a really big fan of this movie. And within about an hour, I made a little like private bet with myself that he was going to call it a movie about life in his review. Uh, and lo and behold, I was, I was proven correct. Um, I really don't like that point of criticism and I really don't like that sort of approach to filmmaking because it feels like the sort of thing that like arguments about hard determinism uh, can do where it's just a, a sort of coverall for any sort of uh, mistakes or things you don't like. It's like, oh, are these characters inconsistent? Just like life. Oh, do things just sort of happen without much of a narrative arc? Just like life. You know what I mean? It's sort of like, oh, this this writing is not particularly um, consistent or particularly sharp or particularly funny. And there are a lot of scenes that are slack and don't really go anywhere. And you don't really know what the movie is unless you sort of knew about the ending in advance. But that, hey, guess what? That's just like life. You know what I mean? That this feels like like the um, epitome of that sort of sensibility of filmmaking. And it's just, I think it's just not for me. Um, I... I'm stealing this argument from uh, a friend of ours, Gretchen, on Letterboxd. Shoutouts to Gretchen, come on the pod, etc. But um, she made the point in her review that these characters are not actually very well defined. And I think I agree with that. I just like, I understand, I think, what the movie is doing in that by the second act, the sort of hard edges of these characters are sanded down, right? Like like we had said, the, the mother character, um, Aurora, she has this relationship with Garrett and that like makes her more human. Um, and, and, uh, softer, softens her as time goes by, and the sort of parallel journey happens with Deborah Winger's character. But the the way it was handled in the movie didn't really work for me, and instead, it sort of it made these characters feel very almost amorphous, scene for scene. I didn't really get the feeling that their relationships were, with one another were 
defined particularly well in that, like, I feel like the Aurora, um, Emma relationship we saw in the opening credits of the movie and the, the one that we saw immediately following that was different. And that happens a couple of times, right? Like there, there's that scene where um, Aurora is so worried about and angry about being a grandmother that she um, basically is, is cold to her grandchildren. And then she has her relationship with um, Garrett and um, she softens considerably, but like, we don't see that progression. Instead, it's just like, it's like the idea that, that her hardness was like a veneer over what was actually a grandmother basically. And, um, there's a sort of, I'm, and I'm, I don't mean to shit on this movie too much, but like there was a sort of round condescension among all of the characters in this movie that I sensed, and maybe I was reading too much into it, but there was, there was just something of the idea that like, I was looking down on these characters a little bit even even in the idea that I know this is supposed to be sort of like a big capital L life movie about all of its trials and tribulations and difficulties and contradictions, et cetera, et cetera. Whenever they try to do that, I feel like they, like it, particularly Hollywood, sort of ends up doing this thing where they trivialize a lot of people and a lot of sort of like things, you know what I mean, in the sort of attempt at making something that's broad. Um, I don't necessarily know that that happened here because I really like a, a lot of what's happening here. But at the same time, they're, they're just like these little things like um, the movie's obsession with sex and the idea that everybody is like, like that, that um, for instance, Aurora just needs to get laid is like basically the big over under on why she's so like shrewish in the beginning. And I, that really didn't stick for me. Um, like Emma and uh, Flap, their relationship like completely doesn't work for me um, in any sense. And I know it's kind of not supposed to, and that Flap is just sort of an asshole and an idiot. But like, there's a lot spent on that, and I like I didn't buy that they were in love at any moment in this movie. Even their last scene together um, didn't make much sense to me at all. Uh, and um, finally, I guess if I'm if I'm going to be really critical, I don't really like the ending that much either. To to be honest, I think there are some very affecting scenes. Um, I'm particularly thinking of Aurora's scene with her oldest son. Uh, the "I know I love you, I know you love me" monologue is very affecting and, and outstanding. I think, but um, that and the scene that immediately follows it, um, it's just. I don't know. The The score is terrible in this movie, in my opinion. And it, it creates this really like, it it feels like I'm being led a little bit too much. It's like I, the movie really wants me to feel a certain way. And it really wants to like break down my defenses. And I just, it wasn't getting there for me because of all of the sort of um, slackness of the scenes and the characterizations. But maybe uh, my next door neighbor, Aaron, the former astronaut, has a different opinion. Aaron, would you come down from the moon and tell us what you're thinking? Yeah, I'm uh, actually I can't come down from the moon because I'm currently erasing uh, all of my comments that I was going to say about this film feeling true to life uh, after Harry's comments. Uh, I'm just, like, just taking a gigantic eraser, just like the words life are being like crossed out. Um, you know, I look, I, I, uh, I think I really I like I like this movie a good amount. I think, uh, uh, I, you know, I watched this with, with Harry and uh, Jason, and I think. I probably enjoyed it the most. I mean, I certainly enjoyed it more than Harry. I guess Jason and I can kind of discuss, but 
Um, yeah, I, I liked it. I don't know. I, th- I think that um, this film does a, a pretty good job of, of walking uh, kind of a weird tightrope walk. And it's a film that, that feels very melodramatic, um, often uh, kind of like a soap opera even. Um, this isn't just the writing in the story, but it is, as Harry mentioned a minute ago, like it, it's, it's the, the music that plays. Um, it's the cinematography. It's the staging. It's the art direction. It's this weird kind of like... Uh, I don't know, kind of soap opera esque, uh, uh, like uh, you know, effect over the camera where it feels like everything's being rubbed down with soap uh, right before, right? Um, but the the tightrope walk that this film does walk, I think, and it's already sound cliched, um, is that this film does still uh, feel quite real, and that it communicates something that does feel true to life. Um, you know, I, I didn't connect with any of these characters. I don't see myself really in any of these characters. Um, but this this movie still feels real to a certain degree. I think um, a lot of this is the the heavy lifting being done by the actors. I think the, these are pretty cartoonish performances uh, at times. Um, but I think that in that style, I think they are generally pretty excellent. Um, you know, they they kind of serve that tone well. I think particularly uh, Deborah Winger uh, as Emma does a, a great job. Her character. Uh, feels very authentic just in the way that she reacts to the people around her. Um, she feels, again, like a real person, even if it is kind of exaggerated. Um, I think that she can get overshadowed by some of the larger names in the cast here. I think, uh, like, unfortunately, there is, uh, you know, I know that he won uh, Best Supporting Actor in this. There's not enough Nicholson in this movie. This movie needs more Jack Nicholson. Uh, I think in terms of, like, the, the actors who are really hitting it out of the park here, I think he's, like, Maybe not even my favorite. I think he's like maybe like three or four here, uh, which is weird, weird to say about Jack Nicholson. Um, also, uh, I guess if we're going to get into specific points, I think that I do disagree a little bit with some of uh, Harry's portrayals of the the character characterizations in this film. Um, you know, I think that the, the movie is doing a weird thing and that it's it's jumping around chronologically, not around, but it's jumping forward chronologically pretty consistently. Um and so these characters don't necessarily go through arcs, right? You don't see them grow. Uh, instead, what you see is you see time jumps. You see the different contexts that these characters are living and kind of operating in. Um, and then you see that the way that they've changed in the interim, right? Which is is weird, right? Because you don't see them grow in the moment. You see the result of them having grown due to where they are in life. And I think that that works in this film, but I could I could see some of the criticisms around the lack of specific character growth here, but I, I think that it generally worked for me. Um, just not to say this movie is like a masterpiece. I mean, I know it won all the awards and stuff. Uh, I did enjoy it quite a bit. I do have my problems with it, but um, I, I quite enjoyed this watch. Yeah. Um, Jason, sorry. I just wanted to sort of, I, as Aaron was talking, something he said was really instructive to me. And I think I, it sort of hones in further on my issue with this movie, and it's not an issue with all sort of like quasi-authentic, quasi-real-life movies in this mold, but there's something that movies in that mold tend to try to get away with that really sticks with me, which is just that like they are comfortable with inherent contradictions without trying to explain or make those uh, contradictions sort of material or understandable to the audience because quote, that's just how it is unquote. And I would say that like both of the major relationships depicted in this movie between mother and daughter and between Aurora and um, Garrett, like they lean, especially early on really heavily on that idea that like, Oh, it's so funny that Aurora 
is attracted to Garrett, even though he's exactly wrong for her and everything that she says she loves, because that's just how it is. And like, also that, that same thing with like, oh, like Emma and Aurora, they must have this, uh, this mother daughter relationship. That's very close, even though they're very different people and they, they're often contentious again, just because that's how it is. And I'm comfortable with embracing contradictions. What I want is for the movie to show me why those contradictions exist like I, I want Aurora's interiority to explain to me, even if she doesn't understand herself, I want to see it visually why she's attracted to Garrett Breedlove. And I want to see um, Deborah Winger's character and um, Aurora have this sort of like conversation about how they are still sort of interdependent or intercodependent or whatever you want to call it with one another, even though they're often so contentious. And I, I just, I think it's maybe just the skipping ahead thing, Aaron thing that you mentioned, but I just didn't get a lot of that. And instead I got a lot of like what I felt like, and maybe I'm wrong here. Right. But what I felt like was kind of a a comfort in that laziness in a comfort in just sort of like letting all of those things ride instead of having to sort of like do the work of, of laying them out. Right. Like I think even, um, uh, Flap and, and Emma's relationship is is a pretty good example of that. Where like their big thing is just that they really like having sex with one another, which is is fine, I guess. But like, I just didn't. I like I never bought that there was enough there that she would suffer this way, and I didn't get any other sense of like why she was like if I if I had had a scene where like she talks about some other sort of like. Um, feelings of inadequacy or or feelings of shame or wanting to prove to her mother that she could pull this off or fear that she wouldn't get anything better or something. It like, it would have worked better for me, but instead I just, I feel like I was really kept at arm's length from the interiority of these characters in sort of favor of doing this broad, like jumping ahead thing to sort of attempt to portray an entire life almost in like um, montage and um, I guess I just, I, w- I wanted to know more about these people instead of just sort of like seeing how their lives were going to play out. Crew, you let me know when you're ready to pivot because my next point is uh, is a pivot. So I don't know whose hand went up first, but hit it. Uh, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say that again, I, I think I disagree with you uh, on your portrayal of the relationship between uh, Aurora and Garrett. I think that there's a... a I think there's kind of, it feels to me like a bit of of a misunderstanding there, but I do see where you're coming from. Um, But I think that the movie does the things that you say that it doesn't do, right? Like the, the relationship between Aurora and Garrett is not just juxtaposition or um, I can't, what was the term you used earlier? Uh, uh, It's not just the, that they, you know, opposites attract, right? It's not just that this thing is the way that it is. Uh, and then we're just going to go from there. I think that the, the characters are, are, I think, pretty clearly set up uh, as, um, you know, being right for each other at the time, right? It's not just that Aurora has not had sex and needs to have sex. It's that uh, being, uh, you know, kind of surviving her dead husband uh, has her living a lifestyle that is inherently too conservative. Um, and and that uh, a character like Garrett uh coming into her life at that time is maybe exactly what she needed, right? I think that is not just portrayed uh, in their relationship, but also the way that she uh, interacts with and treats her daughter, right? I think that that is uh, kind of expressing a lot of the same kind of conservative uh, notions 
um, and I don't mean political, um, you know what I'm saying, uh, yeah. that kind of define the flaws in her character. And I think that they are legitimate flaws. Uh, it doesn't feel cheap to me. Um, it feels like maybe that's a little underbaked. Uh, and then the movie feels content to just say, here's how these characters are. And then we're going to go from there. I think that there is a legitimate argument that you're making that like, maybe we need to see some of that. We need to see the foundations more before you can go from there. But I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm okay with the shortcuts. Maybe that's cheap, I guess, but I, I was willing to go with it. I, I think that's fair. And I, I guess maybe this will connect more of like where Harry and Aaron are both coming from uh, more than I thought it would. Maybe it won't, but I, I guess like the relationship that I sort of latched onto and, and tried to make sense of, uh, especially early on was the, the mother daughter daughter relationship between Aurora and Emma. And like you get the, the movie gives us, it gives us a glimpse with them, what each of their, like where they're coming from more than maybe with, I mean, almost certainly with any other characters that we see, it's like prefaced early on. Uh, I like one of the first scenes we get, I, like they're coming back from, the funeral for Emma's father, Aurora's husband, and like through that sort of montage nature, like you get, I, I guess I, what I picked up on and maybe like what I thought the movie was trying to telegraph to me was like, okay, this, uh, this guy's telling Emma to take care of her mother. And like the fact that, you know, the relationship is characterized by Emma in some ways needing to take care of her mother. And like, she, maybe she feels something maybe we'll see later on. Like she missed parts of her own development because she was trying to care for herself as well as her mother. And that's just kind of like the relationship that they had. And it, it never really, and like, I was on board with that. We just never really got back to that. We never revisited that. It was, you know, we're kind of swept up in the episodic nature of this movie um where threads don't quote unquote need to get tied off um kind of Aaron what you said the sort of like this is like these are the characters and this is just how they are um life goes on etc and I, I guess what I'm trying to put together now is the idea of like like this is how Aurora is in relationship to Emma and like maybe her relationship with Garrett is supposed to be part of like the same continuum of like uh, Aurora is this way um, because of things and because of her daughter and everything else. Maybe she'll become this way because of Garrett, because of, you know, this, um, you know, this extra push she gets kind of in the, the latter half of her life or, or something, um, you know, maybe we're trying to square this or square that circle that way. Um, I guess I just didn't feel satisfied with where we were left with that. It, it was kind of getting into what Harry characterized it this movie has like the sort of life film life goes on and we're sort of gesturing at like, okay, this is where Aurora's development um, will take her. This is like Garrett's trajectory right now. And that just felt a little too, a little too soft for me, or I guess how I set it up top, like more incomplete than maybe I wanted. Um, but I think that maybe just speaks to more my needs as a viewer, not to like take the foot off the gas or anything or like give this movie more credit, but like, I recognize that might play into it as well. Uh, Jason, did you want to do your pivot point or do you have something else to say? It's maybe not as much of a pivot as it is uh, like adding to my thoughts around all of that. Um, I thought that this is going to be more of a pivot, but you guys uh, masters that you are have gotten right back around to it. Um, 
So I guess like the way that I'm seeing this and the way that I'm learning through, you know, you guys' words, Cody, your point about these characters not being very well like fleshed out or set up or, you know, like completed um, is, is well taken. It kind of feels like sometimes they're um, a mush of motivations, uh, you know, by the end, of course, you know, you have two hours and 10 minutes or something from the moment at which they're both sort of set up as several archetypes at once you know there's the like willful daughter versus the mother who agrees with it the the undersexed matron versus the tragic uh like middle class ingenue right uh and you know i think that the reason for me that they didn't feel complete or like consummated is the fact that like there's opportunity in well let's like they're both archetypes with you know, something in front of them. There's, uh, you know, the opportunity for Aurora is that there, she's like, she's on the, the cusp of a relationship, um, but there's not much conflict there because it's either she gets together with Garrett or she doesn't. And there's not a whole lot more to it. Like she's being, you know, uh, pushed toward that by some, by some forces in the, in the game and some others not. Um, but so there's not much conflict there, but in Emma's relationship, there's like constant conflict. There's you know, plot that's always being put before her, but not much opportunity. It's like a weird inverse of one another because she's like automatically set up. Sorry, Emma is automatically set up as the empathetic character. The, you know, the trouble she faces exists uh, to show you like how her empathy uh, changes her reaction to the things that she's experiencing. If this makes any sense, let me know if this needs a, a walk back, but like that doesn't change until the very final act. And like, not to spoil anything, but we're assuming you've seen this movie uh, when uh, Emma is diagnosed with uh, terminal cancer and she um, and Aurora really has to grapple with how she's treated her daughter and like a real significant challenge is in front of her for the first time in the movie, as I saw, unless I'm missing something. And like, there's a core schism, I think, between how these two characters are presented and how they're bounced off of one another that really leaves them feeling somewhat hollow. Um, even though they are moving, even though they're, like there, you see them reacting to things constantly. They just don't, it doesn't feel like, like they're almost in direct opposition to the idea that it feels real. Like the situations feel real. And the fact that the grandma you know, would hit her grandchildren to get them to listen to her out of frustration, out of like real emotion. That doesn't feel like that feels like a real thing in front inside of a real, excuse me, inside of an unreal person, inside of a shell, inside of an archetype. I don't know if that's something that like resonates with anybody else here, but to me, it was just very easy, unfortunately, to boil down these two characters because the movie sets them up that way. And then it tries almost retroactively to like backfill them with these motivations, with these, uh, like real problems, um, that, don't really come to any any like pointed conclusion yeah you've given me you've all given me a lot to think about here and i'm I'm still sort of putting everything together classically as we all do but aaron said some stuff that really made a couple of things click for me um which i really appreciate but i'm i'm starting to now characterize or think about this movie is primarily about how our relationships with people affect our relationships with other people and how an identity is constituted of that right and there's sort of like a um a, a very, uh, I don't want to say fatalistic, but but sort of like whatever the, the more positive spin on fatalistic idea of this movie is, which is that like um, Emma and Aurora are fundamentally going to be defined by one another um, in some part, in some fashion forever, right? And, and that relationship with one another is going to affect their relationship with everyone else. I think it's it's clear to me, even though the movie doesn't say this explicitly, I think they pull it off that like Aurora's relationship with Garrett would not be possible without her relationship with Emma. And meanwhile, 
the person Emma is for like better and worse has been totally defined by her mother, right? Including even her romantic relationship with Flap. Um, Flap has maybe the, the one big giveaway line of the movie where um, he's in the hospital with um, Emma and he says, I'm, I'm worried about losing my identity if I'm not the person who's failing Emma, who am I? And like, that is really kind of the one of the big thesis statements of the movie. I mean, it's like, it's the inverse, right? Like they're sort of poking fun at themselves. But the idea is that like, our identities are fundamentally contingent on our relationships and our perception of our other relationships are also contingent upon those relationships. Um, and I think that that now that I can see the, the sort of matrix that they're creating there, I can understand why the ending isn't as impactful as it is because then it, it wants to think about what happens when one of those people is taken away in the way that it will not just affect you and it will not just affect your life, but it will affect not only also the lives of everyone else, you know, but also your relationship to all of the other people, you know, are fundamentally different, right? Like in the, in the case of, uh, Aurora, um, Garrett and her actually reconcile over the the death of her daughter, right? Like that is what gets her to see that, that um, Garrett is a good person. Garrett actually sort of comes of age through that experience as well. Right. And so like there, there's this idea that like all of our relationships together are what make us up. And like those, those in exchanges and interchanges of relationships are affected by one another. I think the movie does a pretty good job of portraying that. And I think that that makes the time aspect of this sing for me. Um, but then to kind of come back to Jason's point, I didn't, I like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not resentful. I think that you made a really good point, Aaron, but like, I didn't misunderstand the relationship between Aurora and Garrett, right? Like I completely understand on the page who that character is, right? That she's a person who is like retreated into herself following her, uh, her husband's death. And this, this sort of like rash wild dude is exactly what she needs at that moment. And so there is this funny juxtaposition of opposites attract, but there's also that, that underlying fundamental idea. Meanwhile, Garrett is coming of age sort of as he, he re recognizes that the part of his life that he considered his, the main part of his life is over and he has to grow up and sort of like, um, assume a new identity. He finds that identity in loving a woman who is age appropriate for him, et cetera, et cetera. Like that's all there. I get it. What I was saying is that I don't think it really worked for me because I don't think that they pull off the scenes. Um, and like, it's weird, right? It's weird to make fun of, uh, or to poke criticism at Jack Nicholson because he's an incredible actor, obviously, but like, they just like their their contentious back and forth cattiness with one another. It never resolved into believable romantic tension for me. Instead, it was just like this guy is a fucking asshole, and like she is also not a very likable person. And like again, that's where we fall back to the like this is life. It's like yep, you're watching characters who aren't very likable do not very likable things, but like that's just how it is, and like that's what life is. And it's like I get it, but also like you got to give me something. You got to like, I don't know, you, you got to like to make, to make the relationship sing the way you want it to so that I can see how that relationship is going to affect all of these other relationships forward through time. I really want to understand what that relationship is doing to a person and not just in the sort of like, um, checking back on them and wow, now she's nice to her grandkids and now she's softer with her daughter thing. You know, it, it made some of the lines in this movie feel unearned to me, like the flap line where he says, if I'm not the person failing Emma, who am I? I'm like, I get that that's the character he is now, but I didn't see that through the movie. And I wish I had, or just like when, when Emma's like, oh, we never fight. You never think we fight because you're never satisfied with me. It's like, 
I didn't see a ton of that. Like I get that, that she's not satisfied with her relationship with flap, but like, I wanted more of that. Like I wanted to see how Deborah Winger's character is reacting to or against her mother's expectations of her. And I, I get that we kind of see that, but I didn't see enough of it. I don't know. So I, I'm, I'm not being won over necessarily, except that I think I'm sort of starting to understand fundamentally what this movie is going for. And I think that it, I appreciate it. Um, but like, but like Jason said, I think that where it falls apart for me a little bit is that like, there's something to the idea that these characters are so broadly illustrated that ironically, what they're trying to do with the depiction of the sort of primacy of relationships and forming identities falls flat, right? Because these characters are not defined by their relationships to one another. They're defined by the characters that they need to be in this movie. Like she needs to be conservative. Um, Emma needs to be the sort of like ironic, like uh, headstrong, but but fun loving um, and uh, liberal woman. And you know what I mean? It's it's sort of like these these characters are, are, are archetypes a little bit too much for me, so, which is where I think I agree with Jason a little bit. Man, uh, I've really loved where we've gotten to. And Harry, you characterize that really well. Uh, I guess like it's my turn to use the word unlocked, like that the characterizing of part of this movie as like a, a matrix of not just relationships, but like relationship impulses, um, et cetera, is very, like very useful for contextualizing and recontextualizing. And I don't have a ton to add admittedly, but just revisiting that, that sequence at the, um, the, like the funeral or like they're, they're all gathering. I'm, I forget what words uh, are used to describe things, but you know, everybody's gathered after a funeral or, or whatever at, at Emma's house and, uh, or excuse me, Aurora's house. And like, I, I, for some reason felt like I, like, and I think we've all kind of had these in mind or they've been gestured at, but like the last sort of actions that we see these characters take. And I w- was trying to square in my head. Okay. Why is it important that we're seeing Aurora be the person who's still, kind of frigid but also the type of person to like pull her granddaughter closer to her uh when they're sitting down that might have been the last shot of the movie i could be misremembering like why is it important for us to see garrett being the person he is now who's someone who is is gonna pick another grandkid um who's kind of standing off by himself over to like do something else and not think about the pain for a little while uh because he can clearly see like he's a people person and he can see that that kid has something on his mind why is it important for us to see flap um, sitting, uh, in a chair, like a blank, empty dumbass, <laughs> because that's just like kind of, uh, and like the, the idea of, um, uh, you know, a fulcrum of this matrix, that's, those are two entirely different structures, but you get what I mean? Like the idea of seeing one of those things removed uh, and like, have that be the, the culmination of what this movie has been building up to. And then, like see what happens as the pieces begin to crumble and we're scrambling to, to keep ourselves in this entire structure together. That's a, that's a, a better reading. And I guess I'm like, I don't all of a sudden love this movie, but I, 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 it makes sense of, of what I saw. Um, It makes that sing a little bit more. And while I'm mentioning uh, uh, Jeff Daniels, who is probably not a blank, empty dumbass, um, this is useless trivia, but like, my man was, uh, he was 28 years old when this movie came out. Um, oh, I always like doing that. God damn it. Uh, I like making myself feel a little bit shitty uh, by trying to find uh, instances like that. And that was the case here. Um, so do with that what you will. Um, but that's, yeah, that's all I have. For He's now. good in this movie. He's, uh, He's yeah. very good. 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I You know, obviously there's like 19 other actors who are, as I mentioned, Danny DeVito shows up for like two seasons in this movie. But like Jeff Daniels, I think, is quite good in this film. Yeah, I don't know. He he made me laugh a lot. Like, I, honestly, like maybe the biggest source of laughter for me, other than, I don't know, Shirley MacLaine can just like make a face and be hilarious. That's um, true. Which yeah. is very, un, very unfair, but that's how it is. Yeah, I think it's the writing more that underserved these characters than like the conceit for me you know like there's a certain in in like leveling my criticism of it a little bit i i have to sort of tell myself like maybe we don't need those fully fleshed out fully finished characters in order for it to feel like a representation of something worth seeing or like of conflicts meaningfully resolved uh because we are after all like seeing two people's opposing lives nearly opposing lives but you know of course like uh, held together by blood through each other's eyes. And, you know, sort of the, like Cody was saying about what we didn't see or get, uh, you know, intimations of about um, Emma's upbringing or, you know, like sort of where like that never is really poked into very far. I don't know if it exists in the novel, but not in the movie. Um, Like how they each see each other is like, it's definitely impacted by that time skip and by sort of the ways that they start versus the ways that they end. But it's not, if I, if I look at the movie like that, if I look at the movie like these are the two main viewpoints that I need from this movie and I just need to know how they change over the course of the two hours and ten minutes it takes, that makes it a little bit easier to parse and to, I guess, for lack of a better term, like the movie for that because then the writing doesn't really – like I'm not putting way too much stock in it. I'm not thinking about uh, you know what the script is and isn't telling me about the characters. I'm just seeing the characters acting out their roles kind of. Yeah, um, it's it's interesting. I, as always, I, I thought of like three things to say as you were talking because you were making a lot of good points. But like, first of all, a frustrating thing about this movie is that broadcast news is very, very good. <laughs> it's it's like, yeah, man, broadcast news like almost does exactly what this movie is trying to do, except it has real good characters in it. Uh, and so like, if you want like a point of comparison, like maybe that's why this movie kind of fell flat for me is that like, I think that that broadcast news is like a near perfect movie that pulls all of that off because like Holly Hunter's character and all of the other characters in that movie are like so three dimensional that it's like really, really good despite being people who serve a plot. Um, but, but the other thing that I, I think that like, it's, it's ironic, right? Because we talked about how this movie is, is barely a movie. And we talked about how it's sort of hard to parse at times, partially because of the time conceit and partially because of just the way that, arcs sort of um happen and then fall away i'm thinking about like the affairs and i'm thinking about um the relationship contentious relationship with flap and it's all sort of punctuated by revisitations of the central relationships but um there's something about that that like it it makes sense to me this idea that um the people in your life are are very fundamental to you right and and like it, I think that that comes out when you look at the three act structure and you consider how like, okay, the, the opening conflict of this movie and the way that this movie is, is moving through resolving this conflict is basically an act of rebellion on the part of Emma who had been the daughter, right? She, she and her mother come to uh, this sort of like relationship defining disagreement because Emma says like, I'm going to marry flap. Aurora says like, okay, I like disown you. Not really. Right. But like they, they have this big argument about it. And then we see that play out and we see how neither of these characters are actually able to escape from one another 
and who they are as a result of one another um, at all, right? Like in any meaningful sense, like they're both exactly right about each other. Um, like Aurora correctly predicts that Flap is not good enough for um, her and that they won't be happy together. She sort of like, even in, in sort of like a scarier, sadder sense, she, she literally predicts that, that her daughter won't survive a bad marriage. Um, I mean, like there's an irony there obviously, but like that is still literally a thing she said. Um, and we see that meanwhile, like Emma's assertion that like, oh, Aurora, my mother is not really like that. Like she, she needs uh, a man or a relationship and like, like she will let her guard down and like, um, she is not the, the sort of ice queen. Um, and she, she does love me, right? Like there's this, the, the, one of the many reasons why her, her final scene is so affecting is because when she's saying to her son, like, I know that you love me. You don't have to tell me. You don't have to worry that I didn't think you loved me. She's also talking to her mother, right? Like very clearly. And she's her mother talking to her. And like, and, and so you can see the way that those relationships refract and sort of reflect one another and you gain insight from one into all of the others. And to this film's credit, like, I think that's true of every one of these, right? Like even her son um, and, and the fact that he is so frustrated with his mom and sort of blames her for all of the hardships in his life as sort of a, a child of imminent divorce, like, you can see that. Uh, it, it like it makes sense because of the way that we have been shown this information, and I think that that's pretty true of a lot of these characterizations. Now that I'm thinking about it, right? It's it's funny because it's it's I'm I'm not trying to give this movie too much credit because I don't think this is necessarily what it's trying to do. But like these are uninteresting characters in fascinating relationships, right? And and there's something really good about that. And, and, and maybe even sort of like thematic about that, about the idea that like, we are not ourselves, we are our relationships. And like, maybe that's, there's something to that, right? Like, I think that there's definitely a core idea that's worth exploring there. I think you might've unlocked something for me at 48 minutes and 45 seconds into the recording is that it's not as much because like the problem for me, and I think for most folks on the call is that it, like the characters do just feel a little bit stand in at times. And like I said, that backfilling of meaning sort of through their trials and tribulations. If that is the point, I can get much more behind the movie as like a, a dramatic piece. But until that, until I like turn that switch in my mind, it does often feel like Cody said, just like not fully finished. Um, here we are again, coming up on an hour. Are there any final thoughts that we want to squeak out before heading to our final segment? Um, uh, I'm really interested. I'm sorry, Cody. I was going to say I'm really interested in in Aaron's sort of takeaway. I know you like this movie more than we did, and, and maybe we sort of came around. But um, did we sort of speak to what you're thinking about when you're thinking about like the relationships of this movie and the arcs, or do you think that there's something else at play here? Uh, probably more of the former. I don't think there's anything. I don't think there's any like big thing that. I, I think it might, may come down to personal taste, which is kind of a, I think a cheap shot answer, I guess. Uh, but I think that that's probably what it is, right? Like, I think this, this movie is, I think comparing this movie to like a soap opera is probably not a bad way to think about it. Like this does feel like if you took, you know, days of our lives or something similar removed 
weird car accidents and stuff that's like jumping the shark, right? And then you condense that down to a, a two-hour, 11-minute movie. I do think that this is kind of what you get, right? Um, and I don't know. I think there's, there's, you know, the point about boring characters being in interesting relationships, I, I think that's not a bad one. I think that's also kind of the backbone of, of a lot of those kind of stories. And it point. is expressing, uh, you know, that again, this goes back to like the feels like real life thing but it's it's trying to express some sort of humorous or kind of um um, insightful take on the kind of mundane things that happen uh through life and even some of the the more um kind of out there things that happen some of the more important events in our lives are often kind of mundane in kind of the larger uh scheme of things um and it feels like it operates in that space quite well um and I, yeah, I, I guess I appreciated that. Although I got to say that I am not that I'm not that guy, right? Like I don't watch a ton of movies like Turns of Endearment. Uh, I don't watch a lot of soap operas. Um, it's not really my thing, but I think that this kind of, um, I could kind of get it right when I was watching it. I could kind of get why people really like uh, uh, this kind of stuff. Why this, you know, relationship between uh, a mother and daughter is like, uh, you know, regarded as like one of the great relationships and in, in, you know, cinema of that type, even if maybe there's a little things that are, that are few uh, underwritten or messy kind of along the way, I guess. Yeah. Uh, Cody, were you going to say something before? Yeah. And um, I, I, I like that we went with you. It was a way better route to take. I, I wanted to, I mean, I don't know. Uh, at least for me, this was a big laugh or film. If other folks felt the same way, we can like maybe get to the things that tickled us most. Um, the one thing I did want to shout out, and I, I don't even know like what bin of my brain to put this in. It was just like a detail that I paid too much attention to and thought about way too much. But after Aurora comes back to Garrett's uh, front door, like she she comes back and asks him out, and he like she walks away, and he just looks up at the sky. And goes inside, which is like a detail that uh, like is emboldened a little bit by the fact that he's an astronaut. But just like I like in one of the few moments in not just this movie, but like honestly, any movie, I was just like, what is he thinking? right now like he he like is is he uh, like weirdly a man of faith despite oh, wow. being like a man of the stars like what what is he looking for up there that was just like something that really it was like a, a not not like a bad thorn but just like a, a pleasant thorn question mark to have in my side for a little bit um again i don't really know where else to put that i just wanted to say it so it was on record somewhere that i thought too much about that fucking thing um anyways i'll I'll stop talking i uh you you really fucked me up here because that's a really great point you just brought up and I, i was gonna make a cheap joke about uh danny devito wearing a bolo tie you, you frank you frankly just derailed that <laughs> extremely shit joke i mean i was i was gonna make a big joke about how this has to be number one in the golden berries because of that i mean it wasn't gonna be funny uh harry what's up you got some uh, thoughts i actually yeah i really like cody's point because i i did want to shout out i mean like i you mentioned aaron i think that the three central performances here and i you know what um Flap, uh, Jeff Daniels, and John Lith- Lithgow, all, they all do great. But yes, like, John Lithgow for sure. Shout outs. He, he was great. also very good. Like, particularly Jack Nicholson is where I really thought that like, 
kind of ironically, like I don't love the script of this movie. And I think I don't love the script because I had to see Jack Nicholson do it. And like, he makes such a meal out of this performance and finds so much nuance and so much slime and so much like character hidden inside his character that like, it made me think like, what what could he do with like a, with like a three dimensional character? You know what I mean? And it's like, it turns out Jack Nicholson is very good. Right. But like it made it so that like, like the best Jack Nicholson's in the scenes in this movie are like the more straightforward ones when he's not monologuing because he, he gives so much dimension to every line that like even his big monologue about the, uh, the space craft that he was on, it fell flat for me. And that, that's sort of an interesting um, uh, addition to what, to what you were saying, Cody, right? Is that like, these are, these are uninteresting characters and fascinating relationships played by fascinating people, <laughs> um, which is interesting. I, I do. Got, I think I maybe agree with your Nick Nicholson take here. Uh, I do like him in this movie, but he is, he's playing a character that is like very much a supporting role, yeah. right? Um, and it, it exists to kind of help flesh out the character of Aurora Greenway. Uh, and he is very much playing it as if there's more depth to his character than there really is. Like he, he's doing this very exaggerated, like Jack Nicholson, I'm going to, you know, and, and I don't think the what's there supports that really. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, before we get into the the fun and, and laughs, I just wanted to say that, like, I think from a formal perspective, I've I've come around on this movie because I think that I found the ending a little bit cheap when I started. But now thinking about it and thinking about how this is a movie that gen- genuinely, I think, wants you to understand why it is so terrible to lose someone and and wants that in specific ways, right? Like, it's not just saying it's terrible because of how it feels. It's it's terrible because it it changes your entire life forever, even retroactively, right? And like, not just your life and not just your friends' lives, but your relationship with everyone else, it it falls apart, right? Like I'm thinking about the pillars of existentialism or whatever, but it's like, like Emma's relationship with her mother was the sort of like central foundation around which all of these other satellites uh, orbited. I know I'm mixing my metaphors here, but, and so when that is taken away, like what, what do we have? Right. You can almost see why they tried to make a sequel to this movie because it would be so interesting because Emma would be so big in it, even though she wasn't there. Apparently that sequel was, was very bad. So, um, maybe an an unfortunate mistake there, but that, that's something that like, as we've been talking about these relationships and as it's become apparent what this movie is doing, I think that as a formal treatment, um, it's something I can appreciate a lot more. And it's sort of like, I can understand why it's so Oscar worthy, right? Is that like, I think big formal stabs or attempts like that to do something formally, visually, um, something specific and nuanced like that are really what play at, at the Oscars. Um, and not without good reason, right? So like as, as a sort of examination of why grief is as bad as it is, um, I think this movie is, is pretty successful. Um, so I guess that's my take on the ending. Does anybody feel differently or do you have other, um, ideas about what the ending is doing and if, whether or not it works for you? I think I'm about on the same page for what I like. Yeah. I talked about the ending a little bit, um, but I I like, especially in retrospect, um, like the way we've kind of come to a a head here. Like I I feel like I'm 
about on the same page as you like that, that yeah, like an examination, like I, I guess in the only thing I not to armchair or backseat director or whatever, but just like moving that point to like a different spot in the movie. So we could see the fallout of that a little bit more and like see these relationships play out a little bit more, you know, thoughts of a sequel, notwithstanding, like that could have been like, imagine if that was the midpoint of the movie. Right. And they just like structured this differently. That would be like, we'd be having different conversations about this. um, You're saying if this was like a four hour Irishman kind of deal, just taking place over generations. I, we get to, we get to I see wasn't, but Shirley McLean stomping on some dude outside of a supermarket. Oh, I would pay all the money in that I have to see that. That would be. She like uh, verbally does that in this film. You know what I mean? Like not physically, yeah. but like verbally. That's that's a lot of what she is doing. That's right, just but, with yeah. her way. Exactly. Was that a good point to get into your your funnies, Cody? Sure. I'll, I'll give, I mean, there were a, a lot of funnies for me. I'll give one verbal and one kind of more physical. Um, uh, Jeff Daniels as flat Horton, which what a, what a fucking meal of a name. Uh, I'm using, I'm reappropriating the use of the word meal for this episode, but, um, him concluding his sort of introductory sequence, uh, with you're my sweet ass gal got like a laugh from me. That is unlike most laughs I've ever like spoken into the world. I was worried I was going to wake up my neighbors because of how sharp and weird of a noise it was. (laughs) And him just with that goofy smile. Um, so shout outs to my sweet ass gal, uh, come on the pod. Um, mm. uh, and then the, the more physical one is, um, the, the sequence when, uh, Shirley MacLaine, um, Aurora is, you know, she's, she's putting herself together so beautifully. She's just put in a call for Garrett to come over. And after the sequence of her putting a lot of care into her appearance and just like the way she's going to stand, the way, way her hair and like robe, like all that's going to sit. We just see Jack Nicholson strolling into the bedroom. Like he's fucking Bigfoot or something. (laughs) Just like a peek around the door. He does like this. I don't know, like Jack Nicholson kind of, slither is too aggressive and probably unfair of a word but just like by comparison he's slithering he's 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 like very yeah. wet sopping wet just like just, he is he's he, literally wet he the the, yeah. the scene where she like uh she's wearing you know like this kind of like nightgown she like unbuttons her nightgown and then he like unzips his hoodie ah great how good is that <laughs> right, he makes such a meal out of it it's just like i bet that wasn't directed right that was just jack nicholson doing that um, right, right. I really, I'm really glad that you mentioned the sweet ass gal thing because that actually there's something very funny and very um, fascinating about Deborah Winger's performance throughout this movie, which is that like maybe the reason why the relationship between her and Flap didn't really work for me is because it it's not really supposed to, right? And like the way that that's communicated is you can tell, and I don't know how she pulled this off, but acting, but purely visually and from context, I could tell that she was trying harder then she should have to love flap, right? Like she so like largely reacts to everything that he does, all of the, the things that aren't cute that he, she says are cute. And like, you can feel her mother in the scenes with the two of them in her reactions where she's like her, her every reaction to flap is a rebellion against her mother, right? It's like, my mom told me that this guy wasn't good enough for me. So when he calls me his sweet ass gal, I'm going to react like it's the most poetic and, and hilarious and great thing anybody's ever said to me. Oh, it's like, totally. 
it's like it's right there and and i i think that that's such an amazing performance um and and similarly i think that there are a lot of like little great comedic bits in um in in the performances here right like i think that the fact that aurora is so gratified by um slowly shedding her um icy veneer um in the way garrett brings it out of her and the way that she sort of like takes delights in being um teased by him is really good um i'm thinking the scene where he originally tries to ask her out and he says yeah i'm toying with you you want to get lunch and basically like that that's a really good scene and then also there's this very very funny line where he is trying to get her to drink alcohol and she finally says like, yeah, I'll, I'll take a whiskey, a uh, wild turkey if you have it. And the waiter walks away and Garrett's just like, Aurora, are you fun? And I like the way that he says that is so funny to me. And like she, in her face, you can see the like six different reactions happening where she is like glad that he said it and resentful that he said it and uh, resentful at herself for being glad that he said it. And underneath all of that still wanting to have more of that um there's there's a lot of dimensionality to reaction performances in this that i really like i guess is what i'm trying to say yeah oh you're you're definitely right and i to maybe further heighten the I, was it also in the the lunch sequence when he he goes uh something like to kill the bug that you have up your ass was that yeah. the same yeah. okay beautiful the, the idea of uh, uh, asking a woman uh, to dinner, her saying no, and then you saying, well, what about lunch, is so fucking funny. Like, <laughs> yeah. I've just got that thing to do. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it's a funny fucking line. Yeah, very good. You know, I'm coming around, Jack Nicholson. You know what? Takes it away. Number one. Sorry. I know I said that thing earlier, but yeah, I was wrong. I actually think Deborah Weir is the best actress in this movie to be honest, or at least I liked her performance the best. Maybe I, I like that take. I don't know if I agree, but I like that take. I think I agree. And I like that take. Uh, I'll synthesize all of you. Uh, and that's going to be, it's going to do it for our episode uh, until we get to our final segment here, which Harry is going to help oh. me ring in. You almost had me. Hey, yeah, episode almost, proper is over, right? I almost thought, well, the best part of the episode is about to begin. And it's the, the segment we like to call. <gasps> Cody's noties. Beautiful gentlemen. Thank you uh, so much for that endearing introduction. Uh, we are taking this week to finally dedicate a notice segment to the star of the Trilon Cinema's current filmmaker series, uh, and that is, of course, Polly Platt. We'll be playing a game that is very similar to ones that we uh, have played in the past, but also kind of not really. We'll see how it goes. Uh, the name of the game is Polly's Follies. And if you're wondering, yes, uh, I thought of the name first and constructed the segment around the name. We're going to roll with it, and this will probably be fine. But uh, the game itself is pretty straightforward. I will go through and read some goofs, uh, bloopers, blunders, and or flubs from movies that Polly Platt was involved in the making of. That's a sentence. With our uh, blooper source being the Internet Movie Database. Shoutouts. Uh, IMDb, come on the pod. My evergreen disclaimer for these types of games is that I've done my best to handpick movies that we're all at least generally familiar with. Um, we have sort of a limited pool to contend with um, as far as Polly Platt's filmography goes, but I think we'll be able to make do just fine. Every set of bloopers uh, will contain three, and one of them is a fake, and it will be your job to pick out which bloopy I've fabricated. After each set of blooperoos, I will ask y'all in reverse alphabetical by first name order to respond with a guess as to which one the fake is. You get a point for every correct answer, and the person with the most points at the end, 
wins. As always, Trivia Mafia rules apply here, so use your noodles, not your Googles. Kind of difficult to do with this game, but just putting it out there. Uh, again, another evergreen disclaimer. With that, <clears throat> I think we can uh, we can jump in here. We can start with the the movie of the day, uh, the movie of the week, rather. The movie of the moment, Terms of Endearment. Again, we're looking for the fake blooper in this set of three, so I'll read these one at a time. The first blooper here, about 20 minutes into the movie, Jack Nicholson falls out of the car, drunk, on the right side of his face. When he gets up, a wound is on the left side of his face. So that's the first one. Second one here. When Emma gives Flap a tie, the tie's knot varies in placement and appearance throughout the course of their conversation. So that's the second one. And then the third one here. During the opening credits, a 1980s station wagon is parked in a driveway in the background, despite much of the movie taking place before the 80s. So which one of those is the fake bloopy, Jason? I'm going to say B. Jason's going to say B. What are you going to say, Harry? I'm going to go with A. A and Aaron. Uh, I think no matter what the blooper is, I think we can all agree that these are all so egregious that uh, I think we should probably take back all the Academy Awards that this film won. Uh, just in response to yeah. the potential, you know, mistied tie. Uh, now I'm gonna, I'm gonna be the, I'm gonna be the, I'm gonna be the chill, uh, you know, third person to go. I'm gonna say C. Let's let's get the spread. All right, we got the spread here. The fake bloop is B, uh, the tie one. Um, though, though, as uh, she presents the tie two flap, uh, a purple tag is apparently hanging from the sleeve of Emma's blouse. So I guess that's kind of like a real one we can attribute to that scene. Wait, I thought that was um, a joke, right? She just came from the mall to buy a tie. Yeah, She's so like a- I, I, again, we're we're go- we're saying IMDb is gospel here. That one may have not been flagged as like uh, uh like a, a bloop of the bloops, so to speak. Like they have a section for like these were incorrectly uh tagged as goofs, but regardless, that one's there. Um, read into it what you will. Um, bloopies eternal. Godspeed. Uh, we're moving on to uh our second movie, which is previous episode targets. Um, shoutouts to. Targets, uh, a lot of shoutouts this episode. So I'm going to read three bloopers for this. The first one, when Bobby lays on the top of the oil tank to aim his rifle, the safety flips between on and off in multiple shots, despite Bobby not pushing the button. Uh, the second one here, the typeface of Bobby's note changes between shots in the close-up of the word die. The I is sans serif. When the entire note is shown, the letters have normal typewriter serifs. Um, and then the third bloopy here, the admission sign in the drive-in ticket office changes. In at least one shot, the adult price is $1.25. In others, it's $1.50. Uh, boy, what I would love either of those prices. Um, but uh, back to you, Jason. Which one of those is the flake? Uh, the flake? The fake blooperoo. That was a blooper. Uh, I'm going to go B. It feels like a plant because I think you know that I poured over the footage of this movie for the gif of that episode. Uh Hey, I mean, we'll we'll get Harry's guess, and then may, maybe I'll wax poetic about my my methodology here. I was also going to guess B. Can I do that, or should I guess my? Absolutely, second? you can. Okay. If you want to get the spread, it, get the spread, but but follow your heart. You know, B. It is. B. It is. Aaron, what is it for you? This is my chance to break free of the pack. I'm going A. You fools. Aaron is going. Aaron is going A. The answer is A. Uh, go! 
for for this question, and this is me waxing poetic, I think that's the phrase, I admittedly tried to bank on not just our imperfect memory about that scene, but I also hoped our collective knowledge about firearms would be uh, incomplete enough for me to sneak that one by. Uh, I did not entirely succeed. Uh, Aaron picked up the point for that one. He and Jason are, are tied with one apiece. We've got three more movies to to get through here. Harry, were you going to say something? Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I, I thought of that too, uh, Cody, the fact <laughs> that I didn't know. But to be honest, I thought that like the the way that the movie deals with the firearm is so specific and so like yeah. relevant that I really thought that they would have got that right. Like that actually feels kind of egregious to me, you know, because like in that same scene, he's like burned by the hot barrel. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, much to consider as we move on to the last picture show, which is our third, uh, we're at the midway point here. So I'll read these three bloops. And the first one reads as follows. Uh, when Lois Farrow makes a phone call from her home, she dials a seven digit number. In 1951, a telephone number would have been five digits at the most in the small town of Anarene, Texas. So that's the first one. Second one here, the basketball hoops are clearly set higher than they would have been at the time for a high school gym. They should have been closer to around eight and a half feet. So that's the second one. And then the third one here, his hair is too long to pass army regulations, and he has sideburns that would not have been permitted, and yet Dwayne is shown as being on leave from the U.S. Army. Um, so, Jason, which one of those is the fake Bluebee? Oh, God. Uh, C. Jason says C. Uh, Harry, what you got? I think that this is Cody basketball nervous and trying to pull a fast one, and I'm going to go with B. Harry's going to go with B, and Aaron, what's your pick? Yeah, it's B. 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 Aaron says B. Uh, B. Man, I, I got stopped by uh, the 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 glove-like man defense. Couldn't power through the lane. The, the fake bloopy is, in fact, B. There is one actual basketball-related goof, which is uh, when the boys are running in the high school gym, the basketball court has a six-foot lane. In 1951, the lane would have only been three feet wide. Uh, so we'll learn a little something here. Um, but you know what? Two-thirds of you caught me on that, and I've got to live with the consequences. And the immediate consequences that uh, we move along to the next one. Uh, we've got Paper Moon here at number four. This is our second-to-last entry. Uh, this is indeed, I should say, anybody's race still. Uh, everybody's on the board. Aaron's in the lead with two. Uh, Harry and Jason both have one apiece. We won't be doing an episode on uh, this movie Paper Moon that uh, this question is covering, but this is one that most of us uh, here went and saw at the trial on last week. Sorry, Aaron. Um, shout outs to Aaron. And the first blooper here... <clears throat> Tatum O'Neill hated the taste of the fake cigarettes, and in one scene when Addie smokes a cigarette, you can see O'Neill wince just before the camera cuts. So that's the first one. The second one here, in the scene with the $20 bill quote-unquote gift from Addie's quote-unquote aunt, the $20 bill Moe's gives to the cashier is vintage. The $5 bill Addie gives to the cashier is modern. That's the second bloopy. And the third one, when Mose is running through the streets being chased by Deputy Harden, either the studio used the wrong sound effect or the car used for the film had a late 60s to early 70s carbureted V8 engine. So which of those, Jason, is the fakey-wakey? God, C seems so fucking specific, and I don't know. Like, you're a good liar, Cody. I don't know if you're that good a liar. Um, I'm going to say B again. Jason is going to say B. Uh, Harry, what are you going to say? Oh, man, I this is a tough one. I I think I'll go with A. Harry is going to go with A, and Aaron is going to go with. You know, I wanted to go with one of the other ones, but you know, I'm I got to do the spread. But let's go with uh, C. 
Aaron is going to go with C. Love of the game. And, yep. For hey, for the love of the game, and um, uh, for the love of this game, Harry comes away with another point as he picked A, which is indeed the fake Bloopy. Uh, Tatum O'Neill did legitimately despise the fake cigarettes. Uh, they were made of lettuce. Uh, apparently. uh, There's no indication that anything like that, you know, that as far as bloopers go, made it past the editors of the film. Um, So shout outs to the editors for not letting that happen. You did it. Um, We've got a tie for the lead now, Harry and Aaron with two apiece. Jason is still very much in the game with one. He can still tie it up with this fifth and final movie, which is indeed the Bad News Bears, which Polly Platt, I believe, was the, oh boy, production designer and or costume designer on. uh, I'm, I'm, I don't have a visual memory and I can't remember what our IMDb page looks like, but there's an affiliation here. There's a reason to talk about this, uh, again, sports movie. The first bloopy I have for you gents is in the dugout during the final game against the Yankees, Coach Buttermaker, played by Walter Matthau, Coach Buttermaker's beer switches from a can of Coors to a bottle of Lucky Lager and back again to Coors all within a matter of seconds. So that's the first one. The second one here against the Yankees. Tanner gets hit by a pitch on his left shoulder, but he is later shown holding and icing his right shoulder. And the third and final bloopy of the day, several times during the course of the movie, the league standings are displayed, but the numbers shown are mathematically impossible. In one scene, the standings show every team in the league with a 500 record or better, which cannot happen mathematically. They're right. Um, but will Jason be right with his picky of the bloopies? You get it. Good God. Um, the third one. Jason says the third one. Which one, Harry, will you select? Could you repeat A for me, please? Sure. A. In the dugout during the final game against the Yankees, Coach Buttermaker's beer switches from a can of Coors to a bottle of Lucky Lager and back again to Coors, all within a matter of seconds. <laughs> Clearly he was just dual fisting. That's not a that's not a bloopy. Um I'll go mm, shit. This is tough. Uh I'm gonna go with B. Harry's gonna go with B. Aaron, what are you gonna pick? Uh I hate to do this, uh, but I'm pretty sure it's B and I'm not gonna do the spread, so I'm gonna say B. Well, uh, with that locked in, uh, the correct, and uh, by that I mean fake bloopy, is B. Um, that would be a funny thing to mess yeah. up. Um, one thing I probably won't mess up, though, is the math for this game. Uh, everybody made it on the board. Shoutouts to everybody. Uh, Harry and Aaron came away with a, a tie for the lead um, with three three apiece. Um, I, I, <laughs> my success with lying is, is inconsistent, uh, as it shows. But um, before before I conclude the game, any any uh, parting words for the the victors or, or anybody else? Yeah, well, I, I think that Harry and I can just uh, you know, uh, I think we're both just happy that Jason didn't win. You know, uh, we've had I don't think it'll be surprising to anybody. We've had a week or two, a bit of a down week uh, or two in the past uh, little while here, but look, we're back on top. Uh, normalcy uh, has resumed. Uh, everything's going to be all right, folks. This is not normal. Honestly, uh, I know that this is not satisfying to Big Mac fans out there, and I know that in many ways sharing the crown with one such as Aaron is worse than... Okay, so I just I just did the thing where we were... we were Anyway. But, uh, rest assured, this is a sign of, um, I'm only on my way up. And my teamwork. Big, you know. big things to look forward to in the future. I won't just, let you down. Just, we were kind of working together on that one. 
Big things indeed to look forward to in the future. This, um, speak, this, speaking of this which, is how uh, I win. I'm so sorry, but this is how literally how I win is I pit them against each other. He, he um, just wants us to fight. That's right. He just wants us to fight. Look what you're doing. You're falling into his fucking trap. I'm like Rufio and Hook, right? We're like, I know, I know it. I know that. I know that I'm being baited. I, but I, I get just, your reference to Hook, unfortunately. Uh, to, to end this on a little more wholesome of a note, um, just want to note in conclusion, uh, and Jason, I might be, uh, spitting out some of the things that you were maybe going to conclude the episode with apologies in advance if that's the case, but it's important to bear in mind that despite the bloops, Polly Platt's presence in the productions that she worked on seems to have been pretty invaluable. Um, I don't know, man, uh, the cataloging of her accomplishments is such that we have it on good authority that she's kind of like an all-time jack-of-all-trades mentor slash filmmaker without, you know, really being able to properly credit her for all of her individual specific successes. Um, The series about her done by Karina Longworth for the podcast, you must remember, this seems like a good place to start. Um, Having said that, I haven't listened to it yet myself, but it, you know, it influenced the folks at the Trial on Cinema quite a bit. And Karina Longworth herself recorded a pre-screening bumper for the movies in the current Polly Platt series. So I think those are more than sufficient reasons to check the movies and that podcast out if you haven't yet. Um, and I include myself in that as well. Um, but yeah, in any case, thanks for diving into Polly's Follies, um, which is to say that ultimately she had none. The end, suckers. Thank you, Cody. Uh, Tim rolls on. You do not. Yeah, indeed. You do not know. Uh, Cody, how good it felt to because that pre-roll video from Karina Longworth was non-specific about where she was recording it for up until the very end when she says, "So thank you for coming out to the trial on cinema." And I just, oh I, yeah, I did a fist pump, just like yes, this is how it's proven <laughs> that like they caught the attention of a known and uh, I guess partner of Ryan Johnson, director Ryan Johnson. Uh, that's right. That's a fun. That's a fun thing. But anyway, um, quite. Uh, fun times coming up with the series on Polly Platt playing at the trial on uh, bottle rocket and say anything are the remaining films that are going to be playing over the next couple of weeks. So be sure to go to trial to find tickets. Uh, regulations are now loosening. Um, I believe they're a packet full capacity encouraged to wear your mask. If you, uh, if, unless you have not to no re- requirement. Um, I don't believe that there's any restriction on eating your own food, bringing your own drinks, but I believe they're still not selling them there at the trial. And so come prepared, uh, be respectful. Uh, don't be an asshole. It's the movies and everybody wants to be there. You can find us on Twitter at trial of podcast. You can find the trial on at trial on cinema. My name is Jason Daphnis. I help make this and you can find me at Nintendo It's, it's fascinating to hear that, uh, that you guys were both so gratified by the, the Longworth sort of introduction, because I of course was offended that, the Trilon has never asked us to do that. We've never been asked to introduce any of the films at the Trilon, despite being podcasters who make a mo- uh, podcast about the Trilon. Um, Emily, our friend Emily, shout out to Emily, come on the pod, um, did lean over to me and say, how come you guys don't do this when, when that happened? Which yeah, but she means, but she means why don't we do this? Not, not why doesn't the Trilon ask us to do this? Yes, no, I know. Uh, it was just, it was, uh, that was very gratifying to me. So thank you so much, Emily. Uh, I'm Harry. You can find me on Twitter at Stockieri. Uh Fuck me, I guess. I'm Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Take it away, Aaron. What do you mean? Yeah, fuck I was, yeah, was going to say, we're doing another... we went out of order. Yeah, we went out yeah, of order. It's... Yeah, sorry, Cody. Harry, Harry fucking. I'm just playing. It's okay. No, I'm so sorry. Listen, listen, it's, it's all good. Just, you know, 
meet me outside after the recording and, and we'll take care of this like fellas, you know? All right. Yep. <laughs> I'll, I'll buy you an ice cream cone. Yeah. If that's what that means. Uh, my name is Aaron. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, Twitter hiatus, uh, at RB, please. Uh, if Twitter implements a feature where it allows you to see if someone is online or not, you see me online. That is just me logging in so that I could find my fiance in a legal stream of the U S woman's soccer team. Uh, do not pay it any mind. I am off Twitter, uh, but you can follow me on there, uh, if you want. And, uh, yeah, uh, stay safe and, uh, enjoy summer folks. This is my least it's- favorite book. By the way, the the off Twitter thing, the worst. It's not a bit. I'm off Twitter. I also Cody was about to do his quote. Yeah, fuck Cody twice, I guess. Damn, just getting Cody's ass twice. Uh, uh, rubbing my ass right now because it's been got. But uh, in the meantime, just you know, <clears throat> keep in mind, it's not my fault. But I'm sorry. <laughs>